Good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would, please make your way in back to your seats. <clears throat> and as you come and grab your seats, would you join me in prayer, asking God's blessing, for indeed we need it. Father in heaven, I pray that we would hallow your name, that we would so see you, value you, or treat you as the holy, holy, holy one that we would give our full attention to your word. Holy Spirit, would you help us, <clears throat> enable us to see what we have not seen before, to hear maybe what we have already heard before, but God, would you work it in our hearts? Help us, keep us, save us, do your work. In the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory, we pray. Amen. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. Suffering, shame, two things that are on nobody's wish list. Like, nobody wants suffering and shame, right? No one uh, just says, I I'll take that over something else. No one prefers that. We don't choose it if we can help it. We seek to avoid it at all costs nearly, right? But not Jesus. Jesus willingly chose suffering and shame. The Son of God came down into this fallen world, partaking of true humanity upon himself, so that he could experience, indeed, so that he could embrace suffering and shame for sinners. The climax of his suffering and shame, this is on the emblem of suffering and shame, is on the cross where he died. And it must also be true, I think, metaphorically speaking, that while he died on the cross, he also lived his life on the cross. He lived a life of suffering and shame. And he did it for sinners. That is, for sinners, in their place and for their everlasting benefit. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is at the heart of the good news that we love and that we proclaim. And this is at the heart of the good news of the message of our text for today. If you would, please grab your Bibles and stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God from our sermon text for today, Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> what makes it difficult to be a disciple? What makes it harder and harder to hold tightly to the gospel? What 
challenges us? What hinders our faithfulness and fervency in obeying and loving and worshiping and praying to and in seeking God in Christ? What is one of the major stumbling blocks to following Jesus? Many answers could be given, but surely one of the most common throughout the ages One of the most common issues, difficulties of following Jesus is a misunderstanding or a skewed focus on an implication of the gospel. Namely, it is that false belief, maybe the false preaching, the false thinking, or the false feeling that following Jesus is supposed to make life easier. As if the gospel implies that, well, since Jesus bore suffering and shame on the cross, now we don't have to. We shouldn't, right? That's how it's supposed to be. He took it so now we should be free all throughout our days from suffering and shame. Now it is true. In following Jesus, we obey Jesus. We obey Him by obeying His Word. And that gives us wisdom. And in that kind of obedient wisdom, we sin less and less, right? And so therefore all of the self-inflicted misery for our sin, we reduce. We do have less and less shame and suffering that we bring upon ourselves when we follow Jesus. That's true. But much of our suffering is simply because we are living in a fallen and broken, cursed and sinful world. I mean, you could be sinless and still suffer. Jesus did. Tremendously so. Suffering in this life can be physical, emotional, mental, relational, financial, spiritual, and in fact, I believe all of these ways and more, all of us have and will suffer. Everyone, whether you're a Christian or not, everyone suffers. Everyone experiences shame. Ours, after all, is a world of sin and misery. And oftentimes, suffering can even come as a direct result of following Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 to 38. The author of Hebrews reminds us that others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Suffering and shame come to us all. And suffering and shame can come even more so because of following Jesus. Then why follow him? Why embrace this good news if you suffer just like everyone else, and maybe more so for following him. Why not be a Muslim or a Mormon? Why not be a Buddhist or an atheist? Why does it matter? Indeed, it is getting harder and harder, culturally speaking, to follow Jesus and to be faithful in doing so. I believe that it's possible that suffering and shame will only increasingly be our lot. And if we are not careful, such suffering, such shame, even whether it's actual or even just the potential of it, can weaken our faith. 
and calls us not to follow Jesus so faithfully or at all. But I have good news. The good news is that our solidarity with the Son helps us to follow Him with a more focused and fortified faith by giving us encouraging hope. And here's the encouraging hope, that as Jesus went through suffering and shame, so shall we. That's the encouraging hope. Jesus suffered, and He experienced great shame, and so will we. Now that might at first not seem too encouraging. It might not seem all that hopeful, but I believe that it is. I'm going to show you from our text this morning. I want to start in verse 11, the middle of our passage, because I believe verse 11 is the hinge that helps explain and connect what comes before and what comes after. Verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 2 says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is, he who sanctifies Christ, that's Jesus Christ, and those who are sanctified, Christians, we are all, the Greek says, of one or from one. We are all of one Father. God is our Father. God is the Father of Jesus. God is the Father of those who are being sanctified. This is our solidarity with the Son. We share identity as sons of the Father. And from this, there are two, at least two connections. One is connecting to what comes before in verse 10, to suffering. And the other is what follows. It's connecting to shame. In verse 10, let's connect this to the solidarity with Christ <clears throat> to our suffering in verse 10. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that He, God the Father, for whom and by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that He should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There are three encouraging truths about what the Father is up to that I want to show you in this verse. What is the Father up to? What is He doing <clears throat> Simply, we have three points. We have what he's doing, how he's doing it, and why he's doing it that way. The first is, what is he doing? What is he up to? The Father is bringing many sons to glory. He's bringing sons to glory. Not to suffering. Not to shame. That's what we experience now, and that's what we deserve, truly. But he's bringing sons to glory to excellence, to magnificence, to share in all of His greatness. There's a wonder to this. We will have glory. Glory, what kind? Glory of vindication. For following Jesus when the world tells us that it's foolish to do so. Because you suffer just like everybody else and in many ways worse. But you will be vindicated. You will have the glory of vindication. You have the glory of immortality, living forever in a resurrected, glorified body, in a renewed creation. You will have the glory of holiness, no longer having any sin in action, in word, in thought, or in any other way. We will have the glory of, hol- of not only of holiness, but of joy because of it, rejoicing in the holiness we share, rejoicing in, in the immortality we share, rejoicing in all that God is for us, we'll have endless, perfect, deep joy that we can only imagine right now. We'll have the glory of security, nothing threatening, nothing taking. There will be no robbers or thieves or murderers to come in to kill, kill, steal, or destroy. There will be no fading 
no defilement, no diminishment of what we have. We have security. We will have the glory in all of this of our communion with God, of being with God in unhindered, unbroken fellowship. And as Nathan said last week, in the sermon from Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, we will have the glory of ruling with Christ. He said that this is a glorious part of our hope, that we will inherit the right to rule the new creation along with Christ, that this is the ultimate rags-to-riches story. We, the weak, dirty, formal rebels, will not just be tolerated by God in eternity. We won't be shoved off in a corner somewhere. We will be living out God's original design for humanity, ruling over all of creation with Christ in glory. This is what God is up to. And we need, to be, we need to be told that again and again because right now it may not feel like that to you. What is God doing in my life? I'm following Jesus. I'm trusting Him, but it just seems like it's not glorious at all. But He is bringing you to glory. Well, how does He do it? What He's doing is bringing many sons to glory. How He does it is first... Verse 10, by making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He brings many sons to glory by first making his son perfect through suffering. What does it mean that Jesus, the son, is made perfect through suffering? That he is made perfect, first of all, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that he is somehow morally imperfect and has to be improved upon. This is not making Jesus less sinful. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in every way because he is made like us in every way except he's without sin. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 says it really emphatically clear, I think. Hebrews 7:26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. See, that high priest has no need to offer sacrifices for himself first and then for others because he has no sin. So whatever it means to make Jesus perfect, it's not to make him less sinful because he has no sin. To be made perfect here, though, I, I, is the, the word has the idea of, of completeness, of making full. And here, I think it's used in a vocational sense. Like Jesus' vocation, his calling is to be the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king over God's people, and he has to be made fit for it, made ready, equipped, and qualified to serve as deliverer, as the high priest, as king over his people. Being a human being, he had to grow into this. This was always his calling, but he had to be made perfect, complete, ready for it, fit for his calling. But how does he made this way? It's through suffering. The, uh, the founder of our salvation is made perfect through suffering. There is an ethical or moral sense to this. Not, again, that he was immoral and made moral, but that he grew in righteousness. Not from unrighteousness to righteousness. Not from disobedience to obedience, but from obedience to more obedience. Like every command... And every chance he obeyed more and more, as we read in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, although, speaking of Jesus, he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, 
he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus came as the second Adam to represent the many sons being brought to glory. And at every turn, Jesus was tempted, just like Adam was, just like we are. And at every turn, he was presented with another opportunity to obey his father or not, to embrace his calling or not, and he always, always did. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane. The garden in Gethsemane where Jesus was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood right before he went to the cross is much like, and yet with some great dissimilarities to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was being tempted by the devil to disobey by taking that which he was forbidden to take, namely the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was being tested by his Father, called to obey by taking that which he was commanded to take, namely the cup of the wrath of God on the cross. And Jesus took it. This was all throughout Jesus' life. He grew in obedience, passing every test along the way, even up to the very end, even unto obedience, unto death, and death on a cross, it says in Philippians 2. And thus he was being perfected to be our deliverer. The leaving of the glory of heaven. The entering into this world of darkness and sin and suffering. Surely this was suffering. The constant testing of his obedience and his faith and his focus to his father and his mission, his calling was suffering. The apathy of his family members and his own disciples at times. The rejection of his own people. The hatred and slander of others. The betrayal the denial, the murderous plot, the crucifixion of Jesus. This is how he suffered throughout his whole life and even into his death. But it just, it doesn't seem right. The suffering and crucifixion of Christ has always been scandalous. Been a stumbling block to many. To some, the crucifixion of Christ may feel like, the suffering of Christ may feel like a loss, like failure. Like God's plan somehow messed up. Why would the holy, sinless Son of God suffer as a human? Surely this is not part of God's plan. This is not how it's supposed to be. This does not line up with whom we see what God is and how He works, because this isn't good. This isn't just. This isn't loving. Surely the promised champion, Messiah, the Lord over God's people, would not suffer and then die. That's defeat. It just seems wrong. This isn't how it's supposed to be. But nothing could be further from the truth, which is what he tells us. Not only what he's doing, bringing many sons to glory, and how he's doing it, first by making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering, but why he's doing it. He says at the beginning of verse 10, because it was fitting. This is how it's supposed to be. It cannot, should not be otherwise than that the God the Father should make the Son perfect through suffering. The suffering, the shame, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, the Son, is from the Father and for the Father. All things are from Him and for Him. It is from His plan and for His glory that, that the Son suffer this way. But why? In a word, solidarity. Solidarity with 
the many sons being brought to glory. What is solidarity? What do we mean by that? It means that there is a common shared unity of identity that you see in verse 11 that the sanctifier and the, those who are sanctified, they, they share a common identity. That is, they're both sons of the Father. But there is also a common unity of shared experience. That what happens to Jesus happens to us. As goes Christ, so goes the Christians. As I said before, our solidarity with the Son, our shared identity and experience with Him, helps us to follow Him with a more focused and fortified faith by giving us encouraging hope. And here's the encouraging hope, that as Jesus went through suffering and as Jesus went through same, uh, shame, so shall we. And the reason why that is encouraging is because He went through suffering. He didn't stay there. And neither will we. It may not feel like it, but Jesus doesn't take merely any of his people into suffering, into shame, but always through it to glory. He's bringing many sons through suffering to glory. That's what he went through, and that's what he's taking us through. The solidarity with the Son is as the, the Son of the Father is our pioneer. The word is founder here in the ESV. It's a good word, meaning the establisher of our salvation. I like the word pioneer because it gives this picture of that he didn't just come here to establish salvation, but to pave the way, to trailblaze this path upon which we too will be saved. Jesus went through suffering and shame and death, being perfected and ending in his own glory. We read in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He suffered. Namely, we see Jesus. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He went through suffering and he went through death. Death before life. Sorrow before joy. Shame before honor. The cross before the crown and suffering before glory. But he didn't go there. That was his experience and it will be ours too. He even has given us the Spirit of God as we are reminded on this Pentecost Sunday as our guarantee. Do You see, it's guaranteed that even as we walk on this, this road full of potholes and cracks, full of troubles and trials, full of shame and suffering, that we will make it home to glory. Such is our solidarity with Him, with Him who suffers, with Him who who experienced shame. Why did Jesus suffer shame? Why did he have so much suffering and so much shame? Was it because of his sin? Indeed, no, he had no sin. Was it because the Father didn't love him? Of course not. He had a perfect love for his son. Then why did Jesus have to live and grow and obey and serve in a road full of suffering and shame? It was fitting that Jesus go through suffering to glory because he is our pioneer. The pioneer of the salvation of sinners who also must go through suffering to glory. You see, Jesus isn't just one of us simply because of his humanity, though that's true, wonderfully true. But also, and I think the point of this passage here is that he's one of us by virtue of his suffering and his shame so that he could pave the path of our salvation. 
But as the pioneer of our salvation, Jesus didn't simply make a way for us to be saved, as though he says, I'll blaze a trail, I'll clear a path, and then you just follow up afterwards. Good luck. Like he just made it possible for us to save ourselves. That's not what he does. Jesus doesn't just show us the way, and he doesn't merely make a way. Jesus is the way of our salvation. He is our Savior. He is our pioneer because he made it through suffering to glory so that he now, being crowned and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he can be crowned with glory and honor and power to reign, to reign over all things for the good of his people, so that he can intercede next to the Father on our behalf, so that he could be sanctifying us, leading us home to glory. He does sanctify us, verse 11. For he who sanctifies, who does he sanctify? He sanctifies those who are sanctified, that is Christians, us. What does it mean that Jesus sanctifies us here? Simply that he makes us fit for glory. Jesus had to be made perfect fit for his calling of being our Savior, our high priest, our king, and we have to be made fit for glory, made fit for full communion with God. How does he do this? How does he sanctify us? Well, among other ways, through suffering. Just like he was perfected through suffering, so shall we be. These light, momentary afflictions, these sufferings are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And I believe the implication is just as these sufferings are preparing glory for us, they are preparing us for glory. And so we are not simply waiting until heaven to experience something of God, something of this glory, this greatness. Jesus has already made it to the Father. And so now he regularly sends us foretaste of heaven, foretaste of God's glorious goodness that we will experience in full one day. We have real solidarity with our sanctifier. Therefore, since the sufferings of our pioneer were neither meaningless nor random or arbitrary, but rather purposeful, intentional, necessary, and beneficial, since that was true of his sufferings, it will also be true of ours. Do you see, it is through any and every kind of suffering that we are being sanctified, that we are being made perfect, that we are being fit for full communion with God. We are being made fit for glory. And our encouraging hope of this reality comes from our solidarity with Jesus. Again in verse 11, Though the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. They are of one Father. And what does it mean? What does it imply that if Jesus has God as Father and we have God as our Father, it means that Jesus is our brother. And so we read in verse 11b that that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, literally, I love it, in the middle of of the church, it says, in the middle of the ecclesia, the, the called out people of God. Jesus is the head. What is he doing in the midst of us? He's praising the Father with us. Again, I will put my trust in him. Why? As our pioneer to show us that we need to put our trust in him. Behold, he says, I and the children God has given me. These two passages are from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, respectively, and they paint the picture of what's exactly happening to the readers in the book of Hebrews. 
And on a smaller scale, I would say it's also our circumstance. That is, that it's becoming increasingly difficult to follow the Lord, to trust in Him. And He's saying, Jesus says, I love this last phrase, Behold, I and the children God has given me. That is, God the Father has children, and He's given them to me to steward as safekeeping, to shepherd them, to lead them all the way home until I will say, Behold, we're here. Behold, he says, I will present me, myself, Jesus says, and all my people, my brothers, to the Father. Jesus is our pioneer. And in this, he takes us, he leads the way, and then he takes our hands and takes us all the way home. There are three encouraging truths about Jesus' solidarity with us as our pioneer, our Savior, our Lord, our King, who is our brother. The three encouraging truths are, one, we have shame. <laughs> that doesn't, again, sound very encouraging. But the reason why we have shame is because the world puts shame on us for being faithful to Jesus. The world is ashamed of you. Do you know that? It's ashamed when you say, I love Jesus. I want to follow Him. I, the life I live, my values, my beliefs, my commitments are because of Jesus. And they're for His glory. They pour shame on you. They mock you. We have shame because the world pours shame on us for our faith in Jesus and our faithfulness to Him. That's always been the case. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 33 But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is when you were first converted, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. That is mocking. That is shame. You were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. We, we read earlier in verse 36 of chapter 11 that some suffered mocking and flogging. Shame. In that same chapter, chapter 11, this, this great hall of faith of what it looks like, these uh, examples of faith and following the Lord, it says that Moses bore the reproach of Christ and he counted it worth it. He bore, bore the reproach of Christ. That you get shame for following Christ. That has always been the case and it will always be the case we must not think in terms of trying to fit in or have approval or be liked by this world. They are ashamed of us. But that's okay because Jesus is not. Hebrews 2, verse 11, He is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's the second encouraging truth. We have shame from the world, but Jesus is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Hebrews eleven sixteen says that, that God is not ashamed, not ashamed to be called our God. And Jesus, therefore, if the Father is not ashamed of us, then neither will the Son be. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. What does that mean? That we have solidarity with Jesus as His brothers. He's referring to brothers and sisters. But what does it mean? To call someone your brother is to bridge class divide. I mean, surely there is a great divide between Jesus and us, right? He, he ranks 
far above us. He is supreme, the preeminent one. And this calling us brothers in no way diminishes that. It doesn't take away from his glory or his rank. It simply bridges the gap so that we can come to him as he comes to us. He calls us brothers. To call someone your brother is to overcome social and relational barriers. You may not be brothers biologically, but he says, I overcome all relational barriers, all social barriers. I I don't know if this happens to you like it happens to me. Maybe it happens more often or worse to you, maybe not so often. But you've been in those situations where it's just awkward with people, right? You're like, I'm just stressing out because this just doesn't seem easy to connect. Whether it's a large group or whether it's in a, a small setting, Jesus says, you have not need fear of awkwardness with me. I'm your brother. All barriers removed. To call someone your brother communicates loving acceptance and commitment. That's not based on ignorance. Well, they only like me because they don't really know me. Jesus says, no, I know you. I know you inside and out. I know the things that you have forgotten about yourself. I know it better than you know it yourself. I know what you have done and what you will do. I know who you are, and I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. I have a loving acceptance. I am committed to you fully according to knowledge. And to call someone your brother is to demonstrate true solidarity, not only of a common shared identity, but a common unity of shared experience. And that, I believe, answers the third encouraging question here of why is he not ashamed? Verse 11, for those who, uh, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, one father. And that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Literally, it says, for this cause or for this reason, he's not ashamed. What reason is that? It's a reason. The reason is that he is leading us through our shame and through our suffering to glory. That is that even though Jesus, the Holy Son of God, is identifying with sinful humans, he's not embarrassed, he's not ashamed about it. Instead, he gladly, fully embraces us as his brothers and sisters. Why? Is it because he loves us? Indeed. But that's not what the text is highlighting. It's highlighting that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers because he sees and because he's a part of the Father's work of making us sons of glory. Jesus says, I know what's happening here. I'm bringing you to be sons of glory. I'm bringing you to the Father in all fullness and of perfection. Jesus' glad-hearted commitment to identify and fully embrace sinners as brothers is not simply because he's human and we're human, though that's true, but more so to the point in this passage is that as our pioneer, he went through suffering to glory, and so will we. Just like he went through shame to get a crown of glory, we will too in solidarity with him. This is the encouraging hope. This is what makes Jesus say to the world, I know you're ashamed of them. Listen, I know who they are. I know what they're capable of. I know they don't deserve this. But I also know what I'm making them into. I know where the Father is taking them. 
He's taking them to glory. They will reign victorious over all. And that is their destiny. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of who they are because of who they will be. I'm not ashamed of what they've done because of what they will do. I'm not ashamed of them because I am taking them through suffering all the way to glory. It's not easy to follow Jesus. And if you are not a believer this morning, or perhaps you are a young believer this morning, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. It does not get easier to follow Jesus. At least that's not been my experience, and I don't see that in this book. No, it never gets easier to follow Jesus, but it always gets better. How does it get better? One, every step, every slow and painful step on this road of marked with suffering and shame, it points us to our encouraging hope that because of our solidarity with Jesus, our brother, who went through suffering to glory, we will make it there. And every step is a step closer to that reality. It gets better because it gets closer. But it also gets better in following Jesus because every step, even if it's a step of suffering and shame, those steps are perfecting us and preparing us to experience and to enjoy the fullness of the glory with God forever. The road of following Jesus may be a narrow road fraught with difficulties and troubles and pain, but it is also a glorious road. It's not a painless road, but it's not a joyless road either. I'm not saying that persecution or pain or suffering in and of themselves are good or that they are glorious or that they are joyful. Indeed, they're not. And so we should, when we can, avoid this suffering and seek to avail ourselves of the freedom from it and pray for it. But often it is unavoidable, and we know that. And when it is, when we, when we pray for the thorn on our, our flesh to be removed, and God says, no, not yet. No, not yet. No, not yet. You still must drink the cup. What I'm saying is at that point, in the hands of our sovereign and all-wise God, in the hands of our loving Father, in the hands of our faithful sanctifier, our pioneer, Jesus. What is not good is made good for us. And it prepares us for glory. This is the encouraging hope that focuses and fortifies our faith. That because of our solidarity with Jesus, our brother, it is by our sorrows and our troubles. It is because of our trials and tribulations. It is through our suffering and our shame that we are sanctified, that we are made perfect, that we are made fit for God and His glory. And it is this that John Calvin says, that in, that in this we shall see sufficient reason why we should lovingly kiss our cross rather than dread them. For he says, who can find disgraceful that which prepares us for and brings us to glory. Or as the hymn writer says, it's shame and reproach of the cross I will gladly bear because he'll call me home someday and his glory forever I'll share. What about you? Will you cherish the cross? 
Will you cling to the cross because you believe that one day you will exchange it for a crown? That it is preparing you for and bringing you home to glory? It is wrong, and it is unhelpful for me to tell you that life gets easier when you follow Jesus. And it is not biblical, nor, it is, nor is it honoring to Christ to think that the gospel implies that because Jesus suffered and he bore shame that we will never have to in this life. Rather, what he says the cross tells us is that because Jesus suffered on the cross and he bore shame, all of our suffering and all of our shame is no longer punishment. It's, it's, it's not because the Father is displeased with us. It's the Father loving us, the Son sanctifying us, preparing us for glory. It's for our good. And so he says that we need to daily take up our cross, that emblem of suffering and shame, knowing that we will indeed suffer in this life and the world will always shame us, be ashamed of us. And yet that shame is a false shame. It is not shameful to follow Jesus. The world just tells you so. Satan lies and tries to make you feel it so. That is a false shame. However, there is real shame. There is actual shame in our actual sin. Sin is shameful. We ought to view it, treat it, and, and feel like it is shameful. Our sin is shameful, but that is not all that our sin is. As true Christians, our sin is both shameful and it is forgiven. Our sin is wicked and yet it is pardoned. It is paid for. And therefore, Jesus is not ashamed of us because he bore our shame for us. And so he embraces us and is committed to us and calls us his brothers. But we can only be Jesus' brothers and sisters by faith by faith in all that Jesus is and all that he has done and all that he promises. Therefore, this morning, if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus, then God is not your father and Jesus is not your brother, not yet. And this communion meal is not yet for you. So when others come up to partake of communion elements this morning, I urge you to stay where you are. If you are not yet trusting in Jesus and have that faith affirmed by the Christians in baptism, stay and pray. And then afterwards, come and talk to me or one of the other pastors or another Christian or put it on a connection card or email us. Do something to say, I want to reach out and say, I need hope and I have none. Not really. And if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, your faith is in Him. You believe that He is your brother, your pioneer, your high priest, your Lord, your King, your Savior. And in just a moment, you can come up, exit to your left, and come up to one of these tables. Grab these communion elements with, of bread and juice with the gluten-free being to your far left. Go back to your right, to your seats, and take it with a humble faith. That all that it means that Jesus poured out his blood, he offered up his body in the place of sinners so that one day you could have glory 
He went on the emblem of suffering and shame so that one day you will be free from all suffering and all shame and all you will have is joy and glory with God forever. Praise Him for that. Thank Him for that. And then receive, humbly receive that in this life the road is a road of suffering and shame. And it's not easy, but it always gets better because He's with us. He's for us. He's preparing us, making us fit for glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you, you're not just one who makes salvation possible, but you are a Savior, the only Savior. And that you went before us so that you may take us, you may take us and present us before the Father in perfection, in resurrected, glorified bodies that we would enjoy. God, we can't even imagine words escape us, God, to, to understand what it means to be sons of glory. So help us to get a, a better glimpse of it today. Help your word by your spirit to work in us, leading us to following you with a more focused and fortified faith, with a more encouraged hope in you, our brother who has solidarity with us in whom we share both identity and experience. And Jesus, your experience will be ours. That's our hope. We praise you for this. And we give you thanks, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.